story about Christmas is enchanted. Christmas is a part of Halloween and Christmas. I feel like um, baby Jesus wasn't born when George Washington was alive. And uh, Christmas doesn't have water. And we don't drink water when we're at Christmas. And, and there's a story that I think it's in the Bible, might be Mary. Mary was about to marry somebody, about to marry Joseph. So Mary was doing a bunch of work and then she saw an angel and the angel said, the angel said that, be Mary, here come Joseph didn't like this, because she thought, he thought she married somebody else. So then they had a baby. And what did the angel tell Mary to name the baby? Joseph. Joseph. Baby Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It took a long time for them to get there. And then they went in a hotel. And the person said, we don't have no hotels, but we do have a, but we do have a shed. Why, why we put the ornaments on was for the hay on the top of the house. And there was two shepherds that, that followed the star on donkey, on camels. With a tree is for like the, um, are the little place where Jesus has been born with the star on top. Three men came and gave him presents because Christmas is Jesus' birthday. He got gifts like diapers, milk, wives, <laughs> <laughs> and a stuffing. Well, I think that's it, but I think there's one missing, but I don't remember. He came to the world to help us. Woo, let's give those kids a round of applause. What a great story. And speaking of that, it's traditional for us to share a kid's story on Christmas Eve. So if you're a kiddo here, you should have a coloring book that will go along with a story. It's called The Women God Chose. And if you don't have one, there's some right outside the door. And for those of you online, you can download it online. So, let's start it, the women that God chose. So, before I start reading, I want you guys to participate with me. So, every time you hear the word baby, you're going to cradle a baby. Can everyone do that? Baby, okay. And next, every time you hear a color that you are wearing, I am wearing red, you are gonna do jazz hands, spirit fingers. Okay, so we're gonna do the baby every time I say baby, and special jazz hands every time you hear your color. So here goes. The women that God chose. Mary and Elizabeth, her cousin, were making a brightly colored baby blanket out of wool. Baby Jesus had just started growing inside Mary. Did everybody hear baby? Baby Jesus had just started growing inside of Mary, and Jesus' cousin John was already six months old inside of Elizabeth. As they tied the yarn, Elizabeth suddenly grabbed Mary's hand 
to feel a little bump on her belly. I think John's doing a somersault. Mary laughed. Wow, what does he feel like inside of you? It feels funny, like when you rub your tongue inside of your cheek, Elizabeth said. It's so strange thinking about having a baby, Mary said, and a little scary. I mean, an angel came to me, and he said my baby boy would be the Messiah. Sometimes it's hard to believe that any of it's real. I'm not special at all. I'm just Mary. Why did God pick me? Elizabeth smiled. I've been thinking about that a lot, and that's why I wanted us to make a baby blanket together. It's not just for your baby, but also for you to remember a lot of the times God picks surprising people. What do you mean, Mary said. Okay, look, we've got six colors in this blanket and each one will remind you of a special woman that God decided to use to make the family of the Messiah. First, here is gray wool. Anybody wearing gray? It's a reminder of Sarah. She was like me, gray-haired and too old to have a baby. But God chose her to start his family. God picked both of us, both old and both loved. Mary teased her. Elizabeth, you're so old, it would probably be easier to believe you have a watermelon inside of you than a baby. Baby? Elizabeth laughed and held up a second ball of yarn. I made this wool brown. Anybody wearing brown? For the brown eyes of Leah. Jacob didn't like Leah's eyes, and he thought Rachel was prettier. But God saw Leah, and he gave her a boy named Judah, who would be part of the family of the Messiah. What about this red yarn? Mary asked. This red yarn represents Rahab. She wasn't even from Israel. But when she heard about the God of Israel, she believed that he was the true God. She hung a red string out her window as a signal to the Israelite spies who came to her city. God didn't mind that she was from Israel, and he made her the great-great-grandmother of King David. Another woman who was from a different country was Ruth. This yellow, anybody wearing yellow? This yellow yarn represents her because it's the same color as the grain she picked while she trusted God to take care of her after she moved to Israel. God always welcomes strangers, so even though Ruth was a stranger, God chose her to be King David's great-grandmother. Here is purple. Anybody wearing purple? Great. For Bathsheba. Bathsheba had a very sad time when she lost her husband and her baby boy. But later, God gave her a son who would be King Solomon. Purple is the color of royalty. And King Solomon was one of the greatest kings of all time and part of the Messiah's family. And last of all, Mary. This color is for you, green. I'm not wearing green, but I got green eyes. Because you are bringing new life into the world, and this will bring new life to us all. Mary gave Elizabeth a big hug. 
Elizabeth, this is so special. Elizabeth smiled. Mary, when your baby boy is all snuggled up in this blanket, I want you to remember the women that God chose for his family, the old and discouraged, the unwanted and left out, the strangers and the sad, and also you, the ordinary, everyday girl who said yes to God. I promise I will remember, said Mary. The next day, the special baby blanket was all finished. Mary folded it carefully in her bag, saving it for the time when she could cuddle baby Jesus, the Messiah of the world. The end. Thanks, guys. A king should come from a line of warriors, conquerors, and mighty men. But the family of that humble king in a manger was anything but heroic. Tamar was an abused widow. Rahab, a foreign sinner. Ruth, a destitute outsider. Bathsheba, an exploited wife. Yet God was not ashamed of them. He cherished these scandalous women. And at the end of this long line unfit for a king, he chose Mary. God sent his son into the world, born of a woman ordinary and unremarkable, born into a world where he continues to choose the misfits and sinners and outsiders, just like the matriarchs of Christmas. Merry Christmas, Woodland Hills. Merry Christmas. Happy Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas. Happy Christmas Eve to all you who are watching online. I'm Greg Boyd, the teaching pastor here, and this is one of the two times in the year where I wear a tie. Traditionally, it's Christmas Eve and, and Easter and then funerals. That's, a, that's, a, that's about it. Although, uh, I'm finding that my dress clothes, are they shrunk during COVID. I don't know what it was. They just shrunk. So everything's a little tighter. I, I don't know what that's about. So we're doing this series here on... Um, the Matriarchs of Christmas, and looking at the women in Matthew's genealogy. Uh, and we know that ancient genealogies were the who's who of someone's story. So these are women that are part of the who's who of Jesus' story. They say something about the message and the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. And therefore, they're part of the who's who of Christmas. So we looked at uh, uh, Tamar, and we looked at uh, Rahab, and we looked at Ruth the last three weeks. And I don't know about you, but I, I've just loved delving into their, their stories, and I've, I've just come to love these women, have appreciation for them in a way that I, I haven't had before. So today, being Christmas Eve, we're going to look at Mary, the story of Mary. And I'll tell you that uh, I've always had a special fondness for Mary. I just, um, I, part of it was that, that growing up as this young Catholic boy, um, she was my ticket to heaven. I, I, was, I knew that, you know, God was going to be ticked off at me because I was a behavioral problem kid, whatever. But uh, Mary, she was the one statue in the cathedral that we, we had to go to Mass every morning. And, and, and she was the one face in the whole cathedral that was serene and, and, and looked happy as she looked down on the baby Jesus. And, and I always would just like look at her and, and, and just think of, uh, I don't know. I'd just say, Mary, I know that uh, I, the Father, Son, Spirit are probably mad at me, but would you put in a good word for me? I was just always, and so I, I just found a lot of comfort in Mary, and I, I, I to this day deeply appreciate her. So I'm just going to tell the story of Mary, and, um, and then bring out a kingdom principle at the end of it. Uh, and I'm going to tell the story kind of in four acts. So this is a, like a, a four-act play, very brief four-act play. 
but uh, you'll, you'll be able to follow it. So, Act 1. A Jesus, or, Jesus, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Like the kids. Saw, what are those kids adorable? <laughs> the pieces that they pick up and they kind of mix it around. And, and, and now you know that Jesus got wipes for, for a, a Christmas present. That's, <laughs> that's, I love it. It's adorable. Um, but Mary was betrothed to, to Joseph. And that's kind of like engagement, except in this culture, it was like the first stage of marriage. They were legally married. So they would have had to get a divorce to get out of this engagement. That's what betrothed means. And Mary, typically in this culture, first century Jewish culture, girls got married off between the ages of 12 and 14. And so I'll split the difference and I'll just refer to Mary as this 13-year-old peasant Jewish girl. Um, and one day, as you've already heard with the children's story, the, uh, the angel shows up. In fact, Gabriel shows up. And Gabriel is one of the two angels in the Bible whose name we know. And so if Gabriel shows up, you know it's kind of serious business. And here's what Gabriel says to, to this young 13-year-old peasant Jewish girl named Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary, Mary was greatly troubled at his words, and she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Like, what is an angel doing showing up at a nobody's house like me? Am I in trouble or something? But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never, ever end. I am the Lord's servant, Mary humbly answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. May your word to me be fulfilled. I, I kind of like the, the more archaic-sounding King James Version, uh, and maybe it's Paul McCartney that spoiled me on this, but it, it says, let it be to me uh, according to your word. Let it be. Let it be. And in doing that, she's simply saying yes. Okay, uh, if, that's, if that's the plan, then, then I, I'm signing up for it. It says that Mary was greatly troubled. It has the connotation of being both confused and a little bit frightened. That's why the angel has to say, don't be afraid. I've got good news here. Uh, you've been highly favored, and you're going to conceive and have this, this child, and he'll be the son of God, and he's going to reign on the throne of David forever. Uh, this, is, he, this is the culminating point of what God's doing in history. Uh, this is God's way of setting the world right. Now, Mary is a very practical uh, 13-year-old Jewish peasant girl, and so she says, well, uh, Mr. Angel, um, I'm all signed up for that, but you see, there's a problem here, and that's that I, I haven't, well, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I haven't married yet, okay? So I'm a virgin. How's this going to happen? I know the mechanics here. How's this? And, and Gabriel says, hey, we got you covered. The Holy Spirit will take care of that, so don't worry. And so she says, I'm, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be unto me according to your word. Now, I have to believe that when Mary says this, let it be, that she's still going to be troubled. She's still going to be somewhat confused. She's still going to be somewhat afraid. Because getting pregnant before marriage in this culture was scandalous, just scandalous. You got a scarlet letter on you that you, you'll never take off if that happens to you. Um, she would know that this is going to put her outside of, of, of decent society for the rest of her life. You don't live this one down. And we know that rumors did circulate about her. We find in the Talmud that they, they, various times they speculated about who the real father of Jesus was. Maybe it was a Roman guard and, and things like that. So she knows that rumors are going to be spreading. This is a scarlet letter she'll never be able to take, take off. And yet she says, let it be. 
She knows that she's in a culture, as was true of the other women in, in the genealogy. They're in cultures that, that, that just don't give credibility to women. They don't believe women, so she knows that no one's going to believe this story. Maybe even her fiancé won't believe this. Maybe he'll just divorce her, and she'll be out on the street with this reputation now, and her prospects of marriage just went way down. And as a matter of fact, Joseph doesn't believe her. It takes God sending him a dream to say, hey, you know what, listen to your, your wife. She's telling you the truth. And that's when he hops on board. So in saying yes to this, and saying let it be to me, Mary is demonstrating incredible courage here. And she's 13 years old. This is amazing. Um, like the other matriarchs that we've been looking at, uh, they, they all demonstrate in, you know, the, the, in cultures that say that women can't make important decisions. They need a man to do that for them. All these women make incredibly important decisions. They all take incredible initiative. In fact, you can make the case that Mary here is making the most important decision in all of history because by means of her, the Son of God is coming into this world. By means of her, the Savior is being born into this world. Don't tell me that women can't make important decisions. Here's a 13-year-old making the most important decision in all of history. So you can take that little sexist bit about women not being able to make important decisions and flush it down the toilet where it belongs, along with all the other crap that has been said about women throughout history. Somebody say amen. All right. Now I'm getting warmed up. I, I, actually, I had planned on being out here with, a, with, a, with my suit coat on to really, you know, be professional looking, but it's too hot. I get tired, so I took it off. Not only would this decision, let it be unto me, not only would it ruin her reputation, but it's going to cause heartbreak for her. And she learns this shortly after Jesus is born. Joseph and Mary take uh, Jesus to the temple uh, to dedicate him according to the law. And as they're there, there's a priest there named Simeon who's been waiting his whole life to behold the Messiah. He was promised that he wouldn't die before he beheld the Messiah. And so he sees Jesus, and he knows this is the Messiah, and then he, he gives this prophecy. And in part, it reads like this. Simeon says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So this Messiah you're bringing into the world, he's going to have folks that speak against him. There's going to be conflict. And then Simeon says to Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon's saying here that Mary, uh, this, this is being the, the mother of the Son of God is going to break your heart. That's going to require you to be brave like you never imagined you're capable of being brave. Which brings us to, to Act 2 of Mary's story. Mary, Mary's heartache begins early on in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Mary and, and, and Jesus' brothers, it refers to them as brothers, it may include cousins, but Mary and, 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 and the brothers don't go out on, on the field with Jesus when he's ministering to the crowds. They stay back at home. And so they hear words about what's going on with Jesus. They hear the, the reports about how they're, they're drawing these great crowds, which is scary for Mary because Romans don't like big crowds. They're inherently suspicious of big crowds. If you're drawing a big crowd, they got their eyes on you. And he's doing these teachings and he's doing these miracles and there's all this you know, stuff going on. But he's also saying some crazy things. Things that no one thought a Messiah would say. Like, like uh, honor me even as you honor the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and to whomever the Son will reveal him. If you see me, you see the Father. Jesus says some outlandish things that give people the impression that he's putting himself on the same plane as God. And 
Actually, he was. And this is blasphemy in first century theology. Just blasphemy. And this is the kind of thing that could get you killed. Perhaps Mary had heard the reports about how he's already had conflict with the religious authorities. He's already been button heads with them. And actually, they were already plotting a way to, 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 to take him in, to crucify him, to get him killed, get him off the field. So, so Mary is concerned about this. Any mother would be. But there's got to be a lot of confusion and fear. She's still that, that same troubled thing that she was dealing with early on in life. Now she's got to be wondering. I mean, she, she remembers the, the angel Gabriel saying he will reign on the throne forever. But uh, now she's listening to what Jesus is saying, and he's, he's on a crash course to get himself killed. And so how is he going to reign forever if he gets himself killed? She's trying to put all this together. She finally comes to this conclusion. We read this in Mark. It's also found in, 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 in John. It says, when his family heard about this, when Mary and his br- and brothers heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now, a little detour here, a little caveat, if I could. Um, this is one of the, these are the kind of passages that just convince me. And there's strong evidence that the Gospels are historically reliable. Because if the authors were trying to just engage in propaganda, trying to sell Jesus, trying to make something up. Of course, why would they do that? Well, that's for a different discussion. But if they were going to try to make something up, um, this is the exact kind of thing they would not say about Jesus. Hey, his, his, his own family thought he was nuts. That doesn't help sell the story very much. It raises a lot of questions. What do you mean? But see, it, it bears witness to the authenticity of these, these Gospels. The only motive that anyone would have for putting that in there is that it actually happened and they're interested in telling the truth. So they think he's, he's nuts. Now, you would have thought that being the Messiah, you couldn't have a mental breakdown. But you know what? To Mary, it's like, I believe that in, in, the, in what, what the angel told me. But I, precisely because he's supposed to live forever, I, he must have had some kind of a breakdown. We've got to go get him. Take him home. Keep him safe. This is a mother here. His heart's breaking at the thought that her son is going to be in this kind of a danger. He's on a collision course with authority. Which, which, bring, which brings us to Act 3. Whatever soul-piercing pain Mary had when she was worried about Jesus being arrested by the authorities and killed, it would have been nothing compared to the way her soul was pierced when he was actually arrested and killed. And so it's hard to, you know, they say that the worst thing that a parent can go through is to have to witness the death of their, their, their children before they die. The one thing that would be worse than that would be having to watch Watch your son die. Watch your son be tortured to death. And that's what Mary does. That's what Mary has to do. And so I can't imagine the kind of confusion and pain. You talk about being troubled, about being confused and afraid. What would she be going through when she sees her her son get arrested and and then the crowds turn against him? Um, Imagine the kind of darkness she would be entering and the confusion and the pain when when she has to witness them flogging Jesus, ripping the skin off of his back. And then he has to carry the cross, and the crowds are mocking him and spitting on him. And Mary has to watch all this, the son whom she loves. And then what kind of pain-wracking confusion would she have been in as she watches them pound the nails into his hands and feet, and then has to witness her beloved son dying a slow, suffocating death? And I imagine she's just like, how is this? Where is God in this? Uh, is this what it looks like to be highly favored? Is this what it looks like to be blessed among women? Is this what it looks like for Jesus to reign on the throne of, of David? 
He's up there being crucified. Looks like the opposite of all that. But Mary is still there. She's there at the foot of the cross. In fact, all the women are there at the foot of the cross. And all the men, except for John, are away hiding. And we only find that in the book of John, so it's suspect. <laughs> he was, you know, the beloved disciple. But all the rest of the men are, are hiding. And, and they've got good reason to hide. Because when Rome cracked down on a movement, they didn't, didn't just lop off the head. They didn't just kill the leader. They found whoever was supporting him, whoever was part of that movement, they round them up too. That's why Peter was like so adamant at denying that he knew Jesus. Oh, you're with Jesus? No way, no way. Because he knows that if, if he's seen as an associate of Jesus, he could be arrested and crucified as well. So the men are away hiding. The women, they won't turn away. Their loyalty to Jesus and their love for Jesus is such that even though their life maybe is in danger, they're not going to abandon Jesus in what they believe is perhaps his final hour. And so she's there bravely looking on. The same brave Mary that said, let it be unto me, is now at the foot of the cross, witnessing, which looks like the death of all of her dreams and the death of all those promises, but she's still there, bravely looking on. She will not turn away. Which brings us to the fourth act. We see Mary's bravery once more on, on, on full display. When uh, 72 hours later, she and the other women go to the tomb because they want to anoint the body of Jesus according to Jewish custom and honor the, the dead according to Jewish custom. So the women make out first thing in the morning to go to this tomb. And where are the men? All of them now are away hiding. They're scared. There's going to be Romans guards at that tomb, most likely, and, and they could spot us out and they could arrest us and we'd be in trouble. But the women don't care. They just boldly march over there and check out the tomb. And now you know the rest of the story from there. They, the women find the tomb empty. And... Um, so Mary Magdalene runs to tell John and, and, and Peter and the other disciples that the tomb is empty. But of course, these are sexist first century men, and they don't believe her. So they run over to the tomb themselves. You read about this in John 20. And guess what? Mary Magdalene was telling the truth. The tomb is empty. And then Jesus shows up in various ways at various times to them and actually hangs out with them for 40 days. Finally, before he ascends to heaven, he says to them, uh, I, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And that brings us to the day of Pentecost. Ten days later, um, it was the day of Pentecost. And we read this, and this is the last clear reference that we have to Mary in uh, the New Testament. It says, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. This is the upper room experience. And those present were Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. The apostles, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, who, of course, don't get named except for one, and that is Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So no, notice this, that Mary and, and Jesus' brothers, during his lifetime, they thought he was crazy. They weren't among his followers. All of a sudden, now they're among his followers. They're fully devoted disciples. They're in the upper room. What changed? Well, the... The explanation they give is that they witnessed Jesus rising from the dead. And that's how they converted from their skepticism to their, their, their faith. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, then what's your explanation? Uh, it's a hard one to, to explain if you don't accept their own explanation for this. And so Mary's bravery, and you know, this, as the story goes, they're, they're in this upper room and they're praying, and, and finally the Holy Spirit's poured out on them, and they begin to speak in tongues, they begin to prophesy, and... and uh, uh, people hear them in their own language, and then Peter stands up and preaches to the crowd, and 3,000 people get saved. 
And this is what's known as the birthday of the church, this first Pentecost, the birthday of the church. So Mary, because of her bravery, her tenacity, her hanging in there when everything so, seems so dark and so lost, that got her to be, that, that, that bravery is what allowed her to be present at the birth of Jesus, and that bravery is what allowed her to be present at the birth of the church. And it was that same bravery, that tenacity of faith, that stick to itness when all seems lost, that got her into the who's who of Jesus' story and the who's who of the Christmas story. Now, Mary is in, in that genealogy because she's Jesus' mother, obviously. But she's in there, I think, for another reason. Her story says something about the nature of the kingdom. And in fact, there's a number of things we could look to here, but the point I want to bring out here is it has to do with the nature of faith in the kingdom. The nature of, of, of the need to have, to be brave and bold and have tenacity in the kingdom. My impression is that there's a lot of folks, especially religious folks, who think that if, if, if God's going to show up in something, if, if God's really involved in something, well, then it's going to be nice, and it's going to be needy, it's going to be uh, it, it, neat, it's going to be clear, there won't be any ambiguity. God will take the guesswork out of everything. And assume that if God's really involved in things, well, then, you know, the, 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 the people, that's the community of God, uh, truth will just be very, very clear. A lot of religious folks think that truth is almost obvious, and it's always what they believe. And if you don't see it that way, well, then it's because you're a sinner and you're too blind to see it. Because everything is clear. Why? Because God's involved in this and we are the people of God. It's often assumed that being the people of God means that, you know, we, we've got the nice, tidy life. Other people's lives get screwed up. And, and we, we've got the answers, uh, but they've got all the questions. And we've got the solutions, but they've got all the problems. It's one of the things that make Christians so irritating to people. But that's often the assumption, isn't it? We're not the ones who get confused. We're not the ones who have things. And we never get afraid of anything. See, if, if, if your own life experience doesn't, hasn't already blown that myth sky high, the life of Mary should. Because what, what her life just illustrates is that being a follower of Jesus and saying yes to God, saying let it be unto me, being part of God's community, it doesn't all it mean. Doesn't it all mean that you're not going to sometimes be confused? You're not going to sometimes be scared? Doesn't mean that you're never going to have doubts, never going to have ambiguities. Doesn't mean that sometimes you're going to have far more questions than you've got answers. Being a follower of Jesus, as Mary illustrates, it's not about pretending like you don't have fear and pretending like you don't, aren't confused. It's rather hanging on to the promise in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the doubt, in the midst of the pain, when it all seems so dark, hanging on to that promise and pressing through, even though you don't know where the next step's going to be. You keep on, you hang in there. It's the tenacity of Mary, having the courage to believe, even though sometimes your life experience seems to go in the opposite direction. You see, we... we We've got plenty of ambiguity to go around, uh, plenty of pain to go around. I mean, here's the thing, you know, as Mary's standing there at the cross, I imagine that that, that prophecy of, of Gabriel 30 years earlier, that this, this son will be the son of God and will reign forever, that must have seemed so far away, so long ago. And what she's looking at seems to be the opposite of that. In the same way, we have a promise that comes to us from the cross, 2,000 years ago, and sometimes it seems so long ago. It seems so out of touch. Uh, we're t told that when Jesus dies on the cross, he's supposed to change everything for everybody. But we don't see everything changed for everybody. Jesus died to transform the entire world. But last I checked, the world is not entirely transformed. You could say that, that certainly it's gotten better since the first century B.C., yet in some respects it certainly has. But in other respects, it seems like it's getting worse. Where's God in all this? Where's God in, 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 in the global warming that's freaking everybody out? Um, uh, you know, what's up with that? 
How long is God going to wait before he comes and intervenes and does something about this? And Jesus died to end the wars, but there's still wars all around. He died to put an end to all violence, but there's still violence everywhere. He died to put an end to divisions between human beings, but the divisions seem to be intensifying. Not getting less. He died to put an end to sexism, into racism, into every other form of oppression. But sexism is still alive and well, and racism is still alive and well. And oppression's all over the place. Jesus died to give birth, to inaugurate a community, the church. And this church is supposed to be the main vehicle by which people see the beauty of God and are drawn to come into relationship with God. The church is supposed to be the main, the main means by which people are introduced to the beauty of God and become disciples. But as it, throughout history, we've seen the church has often done a whole lot of harm. Then the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing. And even to this day, for a lot of people, the church, rather than being the means by which they're drawn to Christ, it's the means by which they're turned off to Christ. So don't tell me that there's not a lot of, that everything's nice and clear. No ambiguity here. No questions here. Everything's, we got all the answers here. No, folks, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot in this world that is, it can be confusing and, and, and that you can be afraid of. But see, in the midst of that darkness, and the last two years have been dark by every imaginable standard, but in the midst of the darkness, Jesus died to get rid of disease, and last I checked, we still got COVID. When will this pandemic end? Man, I'm getting sick of it. Somebody say amen. amen. Oh, Lord help us. But it's still around. So there's these unanswered questions, and there's a lot of ambiguity. Some folks this Christmas are going to be celebrating Christmas for the first time without a loved one who's always there on the previous Christmases. So don't tell me that being a follower of Jesus means you're not going to have your soul pierced and you're not going to go through the pain of life. Of course we have the same pain and ambiguity and, 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 and uh, open issues and doubts and struggles that everybody else has. But what we hang on to is the promise. He will reign forever, praise God. Never lose your faith in the confidence that the love that God displayed on Calvary will be victorious. Maybe in the long run there might be a lot of short hardships along the way, but Hang on to the hope because it's the only hope that's out there. That the love of God will conquer all and someday all that Jesus came to accomplish and in principle did accomplish on the cross, someday it will be unambiguously manifested throughout all the creation. And the love of God will define every square inch of creation as it was always intended to be. Never give up on that hope that Jesus will reign in his love forever and ever and ever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Folks, that is the hope of Christmas. That is the hope of Christmas. But it takes courage. It takes courage. Courage to keep on believing. Refuse to give in to cynicism. Refuse, when the world looks hopeless, hang on to this hope. When despair seems around the door, hang on to this hope. When your soul is being pierced with pain, hang on to this hope. When the world seems like it's going the opposite direction that God would want, hang on to this hope. He will be victorious. The one who loved us enough to come the first time loves us enough to come the second time. And he that began a good work in us will see it through to the end, praise God. Uh, if there's a good Friday, there's going to be an Easter morning. Easter morning for the cosmos is coming, folks. Praise God. And that is the Christmas hope. So